reached the end of another Vasa, 2015. <clears throat> we began with Asalaha Puja, the day when we chant the Dhamma Chakapawatana Sutta. We finish with the Mahapawarana, Pawarana ceremony. On the one hand, we can be maybe happy that we put effort into our practice, following the Vinaya, meditating, contemplating the Dhamma. On the other hand, it's a sign that we're a year older, a year older as a monk counted in terms of the number of vasas we have. So we're all a year older, but that means a year nearer our death, less time to practice. It's also a time at the end of our retreat the nature of a retreat is that we stay in one place and practice. After a retreat, often there's reasons to travel, do different activities. So we face the challenge of how to maintain our practice after the Vasa. Everybody puts effort into their practice during the Vasa. Regular meditation, meetings, regular practice at our kuti. We have a lot of quiet time. Hopefully we develop some better knowledge and understanding of what the Buddha taught and the path of practice that leads to the end of suffering might even have experienced some pity and sukha arising from our practice. But then can we maintain that after the vasa? Or does the end of the retreat mean the end of our practice? We relax, we let go of the practice, allow the mind to become distracted, Maybe part of the mind wants that, seeking that. A lot of the practice is about restraining, craving, restraining attachment, giving up old habits. But for periods of time that means sometimes we're suppressing desires putting them aside as we put effort into the practice. So maybe now it's like the lid is off. and We want to follow desire <coughs> to do different things. 
how well are we going to keep up our efforts in the practice if we've attained some pity and sukha and some wholesome mind states, some peace, some understanding. How well are we going to preserve that now? As Lumpur Cha used to say, it's one thing to make your mind peaceful in meditation. It's another thing to preserve that peace after you've finished sitting or walking meditation. That applies to the vasa as well. If we go traveling, how well are we really going to look after our mind as we travel? meet people, go places, how much of that is just following our desire, our wish for new contact, new experience. So it's important to maintain that sense of what we call patipata, upholding the monastic form, the ways of practice that we've been putting effort into all, all vasa. We'll keep, keep up those ways of practice, keep up the meditation, keep up the contemplation after vasa. Don't let the mind spread outwards too much get lost in the world again. Because we've been getting lost in the world over and over again since we were born and indeed many lifetimes. If we take the example of our teachers, what made them, or what brought them to attain the Dhamma, see, realize the Dhamma, it's that devotion to the practice, commitment to the practice, to the point where really everything else is secondary. The whole purpose of their being, their life, was to practice Dhamma for the realization of Nibbana, liberation of the heart and mind from craving and attachment. That's what we're aiming towards bringing up that sense of commitment to the Dhamma, to the practice, one-pointing the mind on the practice. Sila Samadhi Panya, every aspect of the practice, every aspect of the teachings. So if we still have doubts about the Dhamma or the Buddha, we have to turn back to ourselves and ask ourselves, well, have we really explored and investigated the Dhamma fully yet? If we still have doubts, maybe it's a sign that we haven't yet put forth our full effort into the practice yet. If we have opinions and views about the Dhamma, about the Vinaya, about the practice, we should ask ourselves, how. How well have we th investigated those views? Are they based on the experience we've had through the practice? 
or they're still based on our preferences, our ideas and concepts about the Dhamma. So we're still basing our practice on our ideas about the Dhamma, our imagination, rather than direct experience, direct insight. One of the reasons when we're on a long retreat, three month retreat, that we experience pity and sukha arising is because we keep putting effort into the practice. We can't run away, we can't move away from physically and the situation is conducive to effort, putting forth effort. Once the retreat is finished though and then very easy for that effort to dwindle. When we're putting forth effort, then we're willing to put up with a bit more dukkha. We're willing to investigate the Four Noble Truths more closely, more directly on retreat, partly because we can't run away Partly because the environment is conducive, other people are practicing, we put effort into our practice. So we might really start to look at how dukkha arises, the cause of it, craving attachment. Really get to know it, understand it, rather than just seek distraction and comfort in the way we used to as a lay person. And Yen Chah used to say, if there's dukkha coming up in your practice, then you're probably practicing correctly. That's correct, it's right. Completely the opposite of what human beings want. Unenlightened human beings don't want dukkha. They spend all their time trying to avoid it. In the way of the world is basically to get enough comfort money, power, and different means by which we can experience happiness and avoid dukkha. The monastic life and the bhikkhu life is the opposite. We're confronting dukkha head on. We're taking it as an object of meditation, investigating, looking at it. That's how it becomes a noble truth when it becomes an object of mindfulness and wise reflection, and then dukkha becomes the first noble truth, which the Buddha said is something we have to study. Parinyaya gicca. We, we learn, we study from dukkha. 
it's not something to be avoided or just to seek distraction from. It's something to look at and learn from. And when we're on retreat, then that's a very good opportunity to do that. Really investigate Four Noble Truths. It's probably why the Buddha gave that teaching on Asala, Puja, why we chant it. And every year you begin your three months retreat reflecting on the Four Noble Truths. Dukkha, Samudaya, Niroda, Magga. Dukkha is to be known for what it is. And Jenchara used to say, if you see Dukkha as a noble truth, then that's all it is. It's just an experience of Dukkha, suffering, stress. But there's no one who owns that experience. There's no one who has suffering or is experiencing suffering. That's gone when Dukkha is seen as a noble truth. When there's enough insight, enough mindfulness, enough wisdom in the mind, the sense of self disappears and Dukkha is just left as Dukkha. It's really the crux or the core of our practice to get to that point where we can just know Dukkha as Dukkha. And out of that then the other noble truths emerge. We see clear once we're seeing dukkha clearly as as an object, as an experience, but without a sense of ownership, then we can clearly see the cause of it, the craving, the upadana, the attachment. We can see the co course of practice that will lead to the end of craving and attachment, the abandonment of it, and experience the cessation, the nirodha. The only way we can do that is be willing to be patient and put up with the dukkha until we can really establish mindfulness. But you see, after the vasa, the tendency is to escape from dukkha, to travel, meet people, teach, get involved in projects and so on. So we have to develop a wise attitude to that, to know our limit, know balance. It's a bit like posture. We know when we change posture we're doing so because of the dukkha, the pain. You're sitting, you're walking, so you want to sit down or lie down or get up when you're sitting. As human beings, we have to deal with this fact every day. But still, we want to be mindful of why we're changing posture and mindful of how the dukkha is affecting us. In the same way, after vasa, if you are doing different things, you know why you're doing it. It's a change of place, a change of activity. Well, maybe that's, there's some good reasons for that but don't let it become an end in itself so that we just distract ourselves from the practice. We lose everything that we've gained in the vasa. It's so easy to lose any pity and sukha we've gained. Samadhi drains away. If we travel, we meet people, the obvious thing is to want to talk, to teach, 
tell them what we've been doing, talk about the Dhamma, and it can seem correct and right. But at the same time, if we let our mind slip, all the Dhamma slips out as well. The pity and sukha slips out, it's gone. And we find not long after the Vasa, back to square one. Not much samadhi, not much insight. We've let it all slip away, drain away. Maybe other people are very happy. We've talked to them, given teachings, visited them and so on. But then we come back uh, to our practice, and back to square one. So all the time the practice is about coming back to the Four Noble Truths. Not just on in theory or in the books, but in practice, in daily life. Seeing the dukkha, looking at dukkha, seeing where it comes from, being willing to face up to it. But the more we do this, then the more understanding we have, the easier the practice becomes. We get more skilled at it. So then the dukkha doesn't bother us so much and piti and sukha comes up in its place. As we practice meditation, we experience periods of peace, of calm, because of temporarily we let go of our craving, our attachment. What you might call tatanga bahana, temporary abandonment of the hindrances of defilement. So we experience the piti and sukha of that, a sense of a small liberation of mind. And if every day we put effort into sitting, walking, well, we'll have periods where we feel calm and ease and the kilesas don't bother us. But we have to keep doing that. We have to be, keep willing to put effort into the sitting and the walking. And if we keep practicing, then those periods of time might become longer. A sense of peace, deeper, more profound. And then we can contemplate the dukkha more easily, see it for what it is more clearly. As we see it more clearly, wisdom arises, then the pity and sukha is sustained for longer, sense of peace is more profound. Little by little we start to inch our way up the mountain of practice. With each insight, we, each effort we put into the meditation, then the mind goes a little bit higher or a little bit deeper. If we keep putting effort in, then it doesn't slip back so far either. Even though we have the experience of peaceful states of mind, then disturbances of different kinds of dukkha arising, maybe the sense of disturbance isn't quite so overwhelming as before. Because our insight becomes clearer and more sustained. We learn, literally, we learn through our experience. So we don't get caught into the same suffering that we have before, or not for as long as before, or not as much as before.
it requires this ability to keep coming back, to look at the mind, keep putting effort into sitting, walking, mindfulness in all postures and all activities. You have to keep doing that, keep coming back to ourselves. As we know, when we begin practice, our habit is always to blame the world for our dukkha, blame other people, blame ourselves or an idea of ourself, blame other people, blame the world, blame the situations we're in, the place, the events, and so on. The more we practice, though, the more we have to take on the responsibility for our dukkha and say, well, this is something that actually arises in our own mind. It's our own experience. We create it. Our own lack of mindfulness allows craving, allows attachment up. Comes into the mind, takes over the mind. And no one else is doing that. We allow it to happen for ourselves through our lack of understanding, lack of insight. In the old days, we would blame other people for our suffering. Like the guy walks along the path in the forest and hits his foot on a tree root, bangs his toe, and blood comes out. So he gets angry, goes away. If he's really foolish, he goes away, gets an axe and comes back and attacks the tree root out of anger, tries to destroy it shouts at it, stupid tree root. And that's our old way, the old way. Before we practice, it was like that. We blame things, blame people, blame even inanimate objects for our suffering. And even blame things like computers. I've seen people hit computers before, even in a monastery. Get angry with a computer when something goes wrong. Or we swear or we shout out because we're suffering. That's the old way. Now we're taking responsibility for suffering, we're looking inwards and saying that really the problem is craving and attachment, my own lack of mindfulness. If I kick a tree root, well that's because I wasn't watching where I was going. The computer crashes, that's just the way technology is. Maybe I was using it incorrectly, Maybe it's just a technical fault. Instead of getting angry with the external object, we turn inwards and look at anger itself and say, oh, this is from my wrong thinking. The dukkha arises, the sense of self arises with it, and we blame ourselves and blame something for this dukkha. We attach to it, take ownership of it. If we can keep developing mindfulness and watching and looking and learning from our experience doesn't have to be like that. In the way of the practitioner is one who's always establishing mindfulness and contemplating, using the Four Noble Truths as a framework, a model. Where is the dukkha coming from in this experience? Is it really that other monk? Is it really the place? Is it really that lay person? Or is it just my mind, my untrained mind, lack of mindfulness, lack of insight into the Four Noble Truths? 
So our aim is to keep practicing outside of the vasa, keep putting effort into bringing up mindfulness, sitting, walking, being mindful of the core what, of our sila, mindful of the Dhamma. And using our experience. We don't have to shy away from dukkha so much as a bhikkhu where yeah, it's our it's our life. You're learning to contemplate dukkha as a noble truth. We don't have to always be shying away from it, trying to get away from it, or blaming people when dukkha does arise. Just stop, establish mindfulness and contemplate it. See it for what it is. And this is the forest monk is like this. They learn to be at ease with whatever the conditions, whatever the situation, they're content to practice. There's a lot or there's a little they can practice. They get rest or they don't get rest, they can practice. People praise them, people criticize them, they can practice. They're not trying to always control the world and control conditions to get what they want in the way of a lay person or the way of they formerly did. They learn to be at ease with the conditions, the changing conditions, because they know they can't ultimately control them anyway. So whatever's going on, we're at ease with it. We're on our own, we're with other people, we're meditating alone in the forest, we're out working with many other people, there's a lot of food, there's a little bit of food. We got a lot of sleep, we got no sleep or little sleep. People are making demands of us. Nobody's making demands of us. And whatever the conditions, we make them all the grounds for our cultivation of mindfulness and wisdom. They all become part of the practice. As Ajahn Chah used to say, you, you, you're an Anagarika, you have the dukkha of an Anagarika. You might think, when I become a novice, then I'll get rid of all those problems I've had as an Anagarika. The kitchen, the lay people, certain jobs. When you become a novice, you get the dukkha of a novice. A novice wants to become a monk, get away the, from the dukkha of a novice. becomes a monk and then he gets the dukkha of a Navakabhikku. Five years of dukkha. Navakabhikku is just itching to go on Tudong. As a Majima goes on Tudong and has the dukkha of a Majima Bhikkhu. Majima Bhikkhu done his Tudong wants to become a teacher. Has the dukkha of a terror. Maybe the external experiences change, but the experience of dukkha is always ripe, ready, ready to ripen. The moment, moment we lose our awareness, give up the practice, lose our mindfulness, not investigating the Dhamma, or dukkha will come storming back into the mind. There's always this lack of mindfulness of the Four Noble Truths, lack of an insight, sense of self forms with the dukkha. 
gain and loss, praise and blame, status, loss of status, pleasure and pain. It's always opportunity for dukkha to arise because the worldly dhammas are always whirling around. If we grab hold of them with a sense of a self, an attachment to self, then the self whirls around with them. From the eyes to the ears, the nose, the tongue, touch, and the mind itself is whirling around. So they call it the whirlwind of self, tornado of self. Every sense contact can be painful if there's attachment. Craving and attachment arise, it's painful, even the pleasant ones. We can't hang on to the pleasure, we can't keep it, control it. And just the movement of the mind from seeing to hearing, touching, tasting. Without mindfulness, it's tiring, it's painful. Mind is always seeking, as long as there's craving coming up, always seeking something else, something better. We're never satisfied. Craving is a river longer than any other river in the world. It's never satisfied, always leads to more seeking, more restlessness, more agitation, more discontent. You get what you want. If you're anagarika, you want to be a novice, you get what you want, but if craving is still with you, then craving just brings up more discontent. You're a majima bhikkhu, you want to become a terror, then you still have suffering if you've got craving there. Maybe it's more subtle that you become a terror, maybe it's the craving of wanting status, recognition, praise. If that's what you want, then you'll suffer. You don't always get that. Maybe with age, with seniority, you get responsibility. With responsibility, you get obligations, duties. Maybe it's tiring, less freedom. You're more exposed to the views and opinions of other people, maybe. The things you say, the decisions you make. Maybe the terror starts to wish he was back being a Nawaka again. That's samsara, isn't it? Spend all your time trying to get something, and you get it, and then you want something else. You want to go back to where you were before. It's like adults wanting to be kids again. Oh, it was so nice when I was a kid. Didn't have to do anything, didn't have to worry about anything. Laying the foundations for another rebirth. This is our practice in the pansa, outside of the pansa. Anagarika, novice, navaka bhikkhu, majima bhikkhu, tera. And we have to work with what we've got. We have to work with this mind, this body, this mind as it is, as it's manifesting for us day by day. If we keep using the Buddha's teachings, then we have the best vehicle, the best tools to deal with this problem. Every day we can contemplate this body is changing, every second, every moment is changing. What's change or subject to change is dukkha. 
unreliable, stressful, difficult to be with, a human body. If we use more colloquial language, it's a lost cause, seeking happiness and pleasure in this body or in the bodies of others. It's a lost cause. You're just fooling yourself if you're looking for happiness in a human body. It's dukkha. You look closely at the mind, it's the same, constantly changing. Thoughts, feelings, memories, popping up, passing away. There's no happiness in there either. In the end, the five khandhas, body and mind, rupa, dhamma, nama, dhamma, it's not the place of liberation in a sense. It's not the, the place of ultimate happiness. It's the insight, the wisdom, knowing the nature of the candles as impermanent, suffering, not self. That's where liberation is. But following the candles or attaching to them, there's no, no happiness there. Just more change, more dukkha, more delusion, grasping at them as self when they're not self. Trying to control them when we can't control them. Make the world be the way we want it to be, to fit with our craving, fit with our attachment. It's impossible. We can't do it. The only wise way is to see dukkha as dukkha, see it for what it is and let go. So please keep up your practice, keep up your efforts in sitting, walking, meditation, keeping the precepts, following the monastic training form, studying the Dhamma, reflecting on the Dhamma, applying it to your daily life. Keep up that practice and uh, whether you're in the Vasa, outside of the Vasa, there's always the opportunity for more insight to arise more peace to arise in the mind from the practice. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.